Hello and welcome to this episode of Vocally Versatile. Today we are starting our series on Linux. We are going to be joined by a special guest and co-host. I will introduce him right after the intro. Welcome to Vocally Versatile. As I said in the intro, we are going to be covering Linux. Uh, this is the first in the series, and I have a special guest and co-host, Gartrell. He is going to be your guide on this journey through Linux, and I believe it is starting with the history of Linux, correct? That be correct. I take it away whenever you're ready. Well, Linux being the premier open source project for most of the world, started actually not all that too terribly long ago in 1991. Started by Finnish student Linus Torvalds, which, you know, everyone knows. But some of the deeper and more hidden histories are very obscure and sometimes hard to dig up. I think in this episode we're going to be covering everything from what could have been as far as how Linux architected and more mundane things like something you didn't know previous to this episode or previous to the tune-up to this episode was uh, that Linux almost had a very different mascot. I like the alternate mascot better myself, so... Many people do, and uh, again, it was one of those things that Okay, it wasn't... Neither of them were actually, I believe, Torvald's first choice. Tucks one out in the end, but, um... Yeah, the, uh, the alternate one, the Fox girl... She was almost completely lost to history. And if I remember correctly from what you've shared with me, it was actually supposed to be a Fox boy. Yeah, um, that's... The jury's out on which one it was supposed to be initially, really? Everyone just assumed it was a uh, female, but it, I could see it going either way. Yeah, and some of the cartoons that have come up with the Fox are actually really awesome, especially for the LGBT plus community, because it actually shows the fox with a transgender flag, so that's kind of awesome. No, right. <laughs> it really is, but um, I'm going to go with, initially it was supposed to be a girl because of the name, Xenia. Right, that would make sense. I mean, it, that is typically a Greek uh, female name, so... Exactly. But, that's, you know, more of the mundane. Getting into the actual technical side, and again, touching on things that's common knowledge, is Linux is very much based on 
Unix. In fact, it's a complete open source re-implementation of the Unix kernel. Um, this came out in the 60s? <laughs> Ooh. Maybe the 50s. It was the original server operating language, so... Nah, you're actually going too far back. Unix, as what we would call Unix, was first developed in um, 1970-71 at AT&T. Bell Labs. Okay. I thought it was like 68, 69, so I wasn't too far off. That's the roots of when they were starting to get ticked off with uh, the predecessor of Unix. That being the old punch card system. Well, no, because Unix still used punch cards. But I'm talking Multics. I'd actually totally forgotten about that operating system. Nope. Um, now we're getting into the real deep history with Ken Thompson and AI Labs and Bell Labs and Berkeley and WoW. Yeah, I, I don't think we want to bore our listeners with going that far back. No, and again, all this information is, you know, very easily searchable. But getting back to, you know, modern-day Unix, Linux systems, there's still actually a market for proper Unix. That's more on a corporate, large-scale, like, Google level, not necessarily for the home user that would be listening in. Right. My notes are a mess. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I catch everybody off guard once in a while. You know that. Right. But let's... Let's delve back towards, you know, getting some uh, more off-the-wall, but easy info out of the way. One of the other things most people don't know is Linux very nearly didn't even have the name Linux. Would you like to take a guess as to what the original working title was? I actually have no idea. I'm not even... (laughs) I'm not even sure I'd want to fathom, I guess. (laughs) Well, originally, the working title was Freaks. A portmanteau of Free, Freak, and Unix. Interesting. Yeah. I'm kind of glad Linux won out there. Uh, Everyone is. (laughs) We've got enough off-the-wall naming and swearing in the deeper parts of... Linux and the Linux ecosystem that we didn't need that on top of it. (laughs) Especially with some of the modern iterations of distributions between Fedora, uh, Ubuntu, Debian, Manjaro, Arc. Some of the distribution names are just interesting. Right. I think my first foray into uh, Linux, Debian-based Linux, is, is um, God, I don't know if the project is still around, Crunchbang Linux. I've not heard of it. I've not seen it in any of the blogs or 
any of the distribution articles or anything like that, so I doubt it. Yeah, um, again, that's just an anecdote from my life. The first distribution of Linux that I remember you using was a very early, I think, 2.4, Ubuntu distribution? Uh, that would be... Because I've been following Ubuntu since the very, very beginning. That would probably have been 5.10 or 6.04. Okay, because like it, I said, it was a really early distribution. Yeah, I believe I, uh... I believe I handed you one of the original Ship It CDs from Canonical. <laughs> you did. Uh, I just do not remember what version it was. Oh, I have lost track of my stock of those. I still have some somewhere. It does happen. I mean, we always lose track of things, especially when they've gotten old. But going back, you said it started back in 91? Yes. Um, Linus Torvalds actually didn't even write Linux on Unix, as some people love to misquote. At the time, Torvalds was using Minix, which is another Unix clone that's actually still going today. But he wrote and re-implemented the Unix kernel on Minix first. Okay. Well, he had to have something to compile it on, so... Right, and Minix at the time was a bit more open with allowing for complete rewrites of internal parts. Okay. Uh, what else can you tell us about Minix? Not a lot, actually. I didn't do much research on it. I was leaving that as an exercise for the listener. But, um... Alright, yeah, I, I completely get that. Give them a little bit of a learning journey. Yeah, um, I can tell you that its name stands for Mini Unix, and again, it's still technically going today. It's been quite a long time since I've seen anything about it pop up as far as news, but no, it's not quite dead yet. <laughs> well, you've got to have some place to start. Of course. Okay, so who was the first distribution in 91? What was that first one? Was it something similar to, like, Slackware, or was it Debian-based, or...? Um, it was, I believe, Debian that was technically the first to release. I know at the time... Um, this was back in 93, by the way. I know at the time, Red Hat hadn't even started yet. But I know the first one to be released stable was definitely Debian in 96. And of course, you know, along came all of the... Microsoft excuse and me. Apple iterations and everything. <laughs> yeah, excuse the pause there, I had to sneeze. Um... But yeah, along came, you know, the derivatives and offshoots. Torvald's initial release of the Linux kernel actually wasn't even... I know for a fact that uh, Debian very much beat even Linus Torvald's 
own release cycle because Debian released on a technically beta version of the kernel because the kernel wasn't kernel 1.0 wasn't even released until 94. Oh, so they were taking a huge gamble by using oh, yeah. the beta kernel. Oh yeah. I mean, technically the first stable release of Debian was a year later in 96, but you know, still first to market with a complete package, complete working system. Yeah, they actually beat you know, Torvalds to release, which is kind of a funny tandem history there. That is interesting that they actually beat the creator of the operating system into a release. Well, no, Torvalds did not create GNU Linux. He created the Linux kernel. Well, the kernel is what the operating system runs from. Yeah, but much like our modern-day smartphones, you wouldn't really say an Android phone runs Linux because it's... I mean, it does, but it's not a Linux distribution. When you say it runs Linux, most people are thinking of GNU Linux. True, and Android is not anywhere near GNU Linux. No, it is Android slash Linux. And once in a while, you're lucky, and you might be able to get an APK to run on Linux or vice versa with a Linux uh, application. Um, getting a Linux application running on Android is actually very, very, very easy. Getting an Android application to run on Linux natively is impossible. Um, I thought through the SDK that Google released, you were able to do that now. That is running Android in a virtual machine. Okay, so they're still relying on the virtual box. Okay. Not virtual box, they're using um, right. QMU, but yeah, same thing. Yeah. Same difference. So when was when did Ubuntu come into the scene? Because Debian was first out. Um, when did Ubuntu and Red Hat come into the scene? Well, Ubuntu through Canonical was actually much later. Uh, the very first release of Ubuntu was Warty Warthog born 4.10 in 2004. And keep in mind that, yes, that version number is confusing. I'm sure anyone interested in listening to this is well aware of Ubuntu's weird numbering scheme where they follow year dot month. And that's why it's an every, once every six month release because they've got, you know, the 04 version that comes out in April, I believe. Yeah. That six months is with a big asterisk. Because <laughs> <laughs> now we've got the 610 release cycle instead of the 4. No, I guess we did go back to the 410. Because it was 6. There was an 06 release cycle in there somewhere. I don't remember where. Right, right. Um, but getting back to your other question, when did Red Hat come out? The original published date for Red Hat was 1995. Um, that was used very much in the scientific and more academic circles than Debian ever was. It was considered to be a more stable base. It had, you know, more support from vendors because they actually, you know, went through and partnered with people to get 
software and hardware running. Okay. Excuse the frog in my throat. Then I believe somewhere in 2002 or 2003, Red Hat retooled and became Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And that was their paid offering, but that's for another time. And at that same time, they came out with Fedora, which is a variant for, you know, just normal everyday use of desktops. Actually, interesting thing about Fedora is it wasn't really ever for primetime use. It was technically the developer insight. It was a beta of betas. Okay, interesting. Also, we we completely skipped over Slack there. I'm sorry. I was going to come back to Slack because that was my first uh, introduction to Linux, and I believe it was Slack 11? Yeah, um... And I'm also going to, because I my notes are a mess still, and I'm sure we're going to get comments in this, or yelled at in the comments for this, but Debian was the first large, big-time release that made it to market. Slack is actually released first, but because of the way Slack works, it really isn't, in most circles, considered... A, a viable distribution until about 96, 98, but it actually launched in 1992. So it actually released before the Debian did. Yes, but anyone who has used old Linux to try and, you know, get an old 386 up and running can tell you Slack is going back that old not particularly usable not really i remember uh, the first time i installed slack i actually had to use the terminal browser so the text-based browser download the x server then download a desktop and pray i could do something on it and there you had to make sure you had your GCCs and your all your compilers, all your ducks in a row to be able yeah. to compile the X server and hope it didn't crash in the process. Right. Well, going back that far, you know, X wasn't even really a, a thing on Linux yet. Like, you could kind of get X to run, but it wasn't really stable. It took a lot of work to get X working on Linux. I remember on the Slack 11, uh, it was it was a pain. Yeah. <laughs> and going into X, geez, that talk about a, uh, a subsystem with a rich history. Yeah, it does have a long history and it's still in use today even with the new variations of the desktops like KDE and uh, the XFCE and the new GNOME well, and the Unity. Yeah. It's all still based in X. XOR now is finally, it's being replaced by Wayland, which is, it's going. <laughs> it's going slowly, but it's going. 
I'm not a huge fan of Wayland right now. <laughs> well, of course not, because it breaks, like, half of everything you try and run on it, because everything that's for Linux that has, that's expecting a GUI is expecting to talk to the X11 subsystem. So, yeah, that just, Wayland is, it's not gaining ground quickly. No, it's not, but they finally did roll it and started re-implementing parts of X in Wayland with the future expectation that they will be stubbed out and replaced with better alternatives as they progress. The most modern version of Ubuntu, I do believe, is using Wayland, and most people don't even realize it. I realize it. Yeah, I mean, keep my Wayland is a good thing for Linux. You know, the whole issue with screen tearing is a thing of the past with Wayland. It doesn't matter what hardware you're running. You don't have to go through and do triple buffering or anything else. You know, set your X arguments for color correction or anything. Wayland just does that behind the scenes on its own. That's that's gonna ultimately be the best. Um, it's just right now, if anyone is a diehard Linux user, they're going to go kicking and screaming into Wayland. Oh, right, just like you know, people are kicking and screaming about the changeover from oh, what was the old startup system called? For which OS? Any of them. Well, Windows was DOS. No, 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 no. I'm talking in Linux. For as long as I can remember, it's always been Sys Linux. No, 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 no. Not the bootloader. The script startup system. I honestly do not remember. And I'm drawing a blank on what either of them are called right now. <laughs> uh... Well... Right now, we've got Grub 2 that starts up all the hardware and yeah, that's bootloader. scripts. Yeah, well, let's divert to bootloaders for a minute. Um, <laughs> the original version of Linux actually required booting some other uh, form of Unix to get Linux up and running. Like, as a kernel. Interesting. Yeah, during development, um, Torvalds, because getting a system booted back then required, you know, very deep level initialization of hardware. It's not like modern BIOS that just kind of sits in the background and just does what it's doing. No. Back then, the operating system would actually command the BIOS after boot to initialize things like your hard disk, your video display, any display adapters, sound cards, any of that. It was all very closely tied together. Now we've come full circle with that with the EFI and UFEI systems. But for a good 20 years there, Almost. The BIOS would just kick off the bootloader and there would still be communication between the kernel and the BIOS, but it wasn't anywhere near as deep as it was in the uh, 386 and 486 days. 
So back in the old days, you actually had to boot an operating system to boot your operating system. Initially, yes. And then I believe the first bootloader for Linux was SysLinux. Interesting. Um, I know um, now when we look through and we, if you actually get the menu, um, you've got the SysLinux right. options. You have to go if... Uh, if you need to change something in your boot configuration, you have to get I'm s- make sure your SysLinux is correct. Yeah, and also, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I said SysLinux, I meant Lilo. I actually have forgotten about Lilo. I've been using Grub and Grub2 for so long, I forgot Lilo was an action, uh, actually an option. Right. Um, SysLinux is still around and is commonly used for things like live CDs or live USB boots. Nowadays, it's being replaced by ISO Linux, which does practically the same thing. But SysLinux can still be found on most USB drives that, you know, have a bootable installer or a live session. Okay. Now, here's some... Here's a touchy subject I know on your end. Um, I know initially that Jobs and Gates... Uh, I know initially Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were working in a Linux environment trying to make a unified uh, operating system. I don't think that was Linux. I think that was proper Unix. Because now we're we're going way off the beaten path for what this uh, episode is about, and you're... You're venturing towards Next Step and the original Windows release, which was actually supposed to be running on Macs, not IBM PCs. Right. I know that the two of them had a falling out, and they split. And then Jobs uh, basically took a variant of Linux, uh, which is FreeBSD, and proprietized it and ah, moved it into the max. I'm going to correct you on that one. The BSDs, or Berkeley Software Distributions, are way closer to Unix and have very, very little to do with Linux. In fact, in fact, most software that's designed for Linux really needs a lot of retooling to get working properly on any of the BSDs. Interesting, because you can you can find FreeBSD and it claims that it's a Linux distribution on its site. Uh, I'm going to double check that real quick. I'm not seeing it on their homepage. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm double checking myself right now. Right. Because again, FreeBSD is based off BSD, which is Berkeley Software Distribution of Unix, which is really the full name of BSD. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I know I had looked at it once. I'd actually installed it once. And I was able to natively run Mac software uh, on the BSD uh, installation. Yeah, it can be done with very early versions of um, Intel Mac stuff. Because at the time, Apple was 
basing it off of... Was it FreeBSD or was it a different BSD that they were using? I'm not really too sure on that part of the history because I'm not a BSD nut. Right, right. Um, I, that is a common misconception then because I've heard other people say it uh, that BSD is a Linux, but it does plainly state it is a Unix distribution. Yeah. Yeah, BSD and Linux kind of have a tandem history, and while some things are interchangeable and intercompatible, they are different enough that, like, if you go to compile X Windows for from Linux and you're targeting BSD, you need to install something like 40 or 50 gigs of source code to get the cross-compiler to actually cross-compile for BSD. That's a lot of data. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, that, that's not something that I would, uh, that's not something I would ever want to try to do. No, I, I tend to avoid cross-compiling if I can at all avoid it. Like, there's some things that's not avoidable with, like, if you're trying to compile... Let's say you're trying to compile an alternate OS for an MP3 player. Let's take Rockbox as an example here. Um, that's something that you just really can't avoid. You can't self-host, self-compile the kernel and all the stuff on the MP3 player itself. It just literally does not have the brain space for it in either RAM or CPU, so you have to do it on another machine. But when it comes to actual desktop-based software, I prefer to compile it in place on the machine it's actually going to be on, because cross-compiling is a headache. Yeah, the cross-compiling, it, it can be a daunting task, uh, especially if you're trying to compile source code that is meant for for instance, for Windows, going through CMake and using Mono on Linux, that cross-compile just doesn't always work. Most of the time, it breaks. Right. Thankfully, nowadays, Microsoft is getting a little bit more Linux-friendly, so it's becoming easier. The toolchain is becoming easier to manage, and actually being able to compile crap for Windows on Linux is much less of a hurdle. It's still not great, but it can be done. With them uh, opening up source code and some of their developers actually working with Wine and Proton, that's actually making the Linux community a lot better uh, because of just the stability of the operating system to start with, the way it manages your memory, the way it manages your CPU. But we're, again venturing into territory that is not exactly Linux history. This is true. <laughs> but going back, you know, to Linux history, to the often overlooked and left-covered history of the Linux kernel, there's some rather interesting statistics when it comes to Linux. How so? Well, for one, 
the Linux development ecosystem, including the developers themselves, very much favors not dropping anything until it is well and truly and thoroughly dead. Like, if you look on the um, Linux kernel Linux kernel mailing list, you can see conversations about once every two or three months of a developer asking if XYZ branch for, let's say, the Motorola 6800 just came up recently. Is this thing dead or are people still using Linux on these machines? And if even an inkling of... Yes, I heard that there is somebody in my circle, you know, either professionally or academically, is still doing research and using Linux on this target, then the developers will sigh and go, okay, we won't kill it off yet. So, yeah, there's code for platforms that technically don't even really exist in the wild anymore because there's still researchers in computer science using those platforms. That's interesting because you'd think the researchers would want the newer, faster, stronger machines to be able to do the computations faster. Oh, certainly they're using much faster and stronger machines for anything analytics or design or anything like that, but there's still optimization routines that are being sussed out and massaged out of very old processors. Um, I think, and again, this is not Linux specific, but I do believe that there is a new, like fairly recent, like two or three years ago, new um, tech demo for the uh, 486DX series of processors that shows them doing proper ray tracing at 30 frames a second in real time at th like 320 by 280 resolution. That's amazing, considering I hadn't even thought about a 486 system in a decade and a half. Yeah, and again, you know, it's not very high resolution, and it's not the most visually stunning thing ever, but it's technically amazing. That is, that is amazing. That, that's the only word for it, that is amazing. Yeah, and keep in mind that those kinds of pure, pure down-to-the-hardware assembly optimizations can be carried forward into things like the Linux kernel for certain routines. That is one thing about Linux, um, past and present. It will definitely give new life and new utilization to machines that belong in the Smithsonian. <laughs> yes. Now, going into a little bit more modern history on Linux, I know it has been, over the last... A uh, few years rapidly gaining a market share of operating uh, of the operating system market. I would argue that it's more volume than actual percentage share because yes, it is very much true that in recent it is true in very recent history that um, 
Linux has seen a explosive growth in install base. But realistically, I believe the percentages have only gone up a point or two. Like, we're still sub 10%. That's actually kind of amazing considering uh, Microsoft has added the Windows Linux subset, uh, which uh, was Windows. Yeah, the Windows subsystem for Linux doesn't really count as a Linux distribution, though. Well, it's actually installing Ubuntu. Yeah, you, it's installing a a sandboxed image of Ubuntu. And true, it is tech... I mean, at its core, yes, it is Linux, but it's not a full-on distribution. Like, you can't get... I, I don't believe you can get things like X running on it or any... Oh, you can now? Yes. Uh, I have okay. actually seen Windows users that use the su- the Linux subsystem and run a full XFCE on a Windows-based machine. Okay, because a couple of years ago when I was playing with it, that was not the case. So they've made leaps and bounds in that. Of course, then again, it's been... 14, 15 months since I've booted Windows natively on anything. And it actually, Windows actually passes off the handling to the Linux subsystem. So it runs your machine just as if you're running a Linux machine. As far as what's internal to Linux is seeing, yes. Yes. That's one of the interesting things is the Linux, the Linux, the Linux subsystem for Windows or Windows subsystem for Linux, rather. Bah, confusing name. Um, It's just making API translation calls from the Linux kernel to the Windows kernel. That's what the technology is at its core. Right, but it's allowing you to uh, natively run Linux programs, the kernel, you know, everything that's base through a, a Linux shell. Yeah. Um, a lot of developers are still on the fence about using it. Um, again, my information is kind of old, but the last time I tried to seriously compile something on a WSL install of Ubuntu, it gave me a working binary for that machine, but when I tried to package it as a deb and move it from that machine to a native Linux machine, there were some ABI or application binary interface uh, incompatibilities. Now. That might have been fixed. Again, my information is old. They have fixed that. Uh, and like okay. I said, this is more recent history than what we were going over at the top of the show. But I know the current incarnation of, for instance, Ardor, uh, for Jack, for... Um, like the NVIDIA Linux drivers, those are all natively running with absolutely no problem. You can install the GCC Plus uh, and the Build Essentials, and you're able to compile 
you're able to compile um, an open sim or a Mango's uh, server or any number of things that you actually have to compile to make them work like in, say, Debian. So it, it, they've made leaps and bounds. It very much seems like um, Microsoft looked at the old Lindos distribution that you used to be able to get it at Kmart. And they said, hey, let's retool this and see if we can get a little bit better compatibility. Oh, God. Windows. But yeah, I hear where you're coming from. Yeah, Windows is something that no one has seen for a very long time. Well, I believe they were sued out of existence. They were. Uh, by Microsoft and some... Uh, some developers in the Linux community just absolutely despised how they thumbed their nose at the GNU license and joined in on a class action suit against them. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you're releasing something that's supposedly open source without ever actually releasing your source code or contributing back upstream. That don't fly well with the Linux Foundation at all. It does not. <laughs> Uh, the Linux Foundation. What history do you have on that? Oh, they have a, they have a rather interesting, not very long but very deep history. Do tell. I prepared nothing for this, so we're going to take a quick break while I do some research. <laughs> you are listening to Vocally Versatile. Uh, your host is Raven. Myself. We are here with our special guest and co-host, Gertrude. If if you have any questions for my co-host or myself, you are more than welcome to call in and we will definitely get them on the air and answered in the next episode. Uh, We are also going to be doing a paranormal uh, series, uh, which will consist of several different episodes. Uh, It'll consist... Everything from cryptids all the way through UFO encounters, ghost stories, ghost encounters. If you're a paranormal researcher or an amateur ghost hunter, we want to hear from you. If you just had an experience that just doesn't sit right, you know, go ahead and give us a call. We will get your story on the air. It'll be your voice telling it. Uh, You can call us at 216 Two three six four nine two three. You can either punch in extension one thousand, or just listen to the prompts. Again, that number is two one six two three six four nine two three. You can also let us know on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash locally versatile. Yep, and we're back. So, the Linux Foundation is... I I should have started this as a preamble before the commercial break, but the Linux Foundation is the nonprofit organization that acts not really so much as the main body of Linux development, but they act as a guiding force. It's a combination of... Well, it was started in 2000, and it's a combination of two other organizations that 
started in the same year and very quickly merged to one larger group. And those two subgroups were the Open Source Development Labs and Free Standards Groups. Um, both were started independently with very similar goals, which was to bring more standardization to Linux, make sure that the growth of Linux in the private sector was managed in a way that kept the ecosystem healthy and not fractured as much as it is on the desktop. Promote and support commercial growth and adoption, that kind of things. They're they pretty much very quickly in, I believe, October decided, you know what? Why are there two groups doing this when one large group would be better? And pretty much pulled their resources. And when I say they, I mean there are some rather large players. Large These players being in what way? Um, AT&T, Cisco, Facebook, Google, those kind of players. You know, basically it's a who's who of very large tech companies and um, people with serious clout in the technical or technological uh, fields. They are pretty much directly the source, cause, and funding supplier for very large projects like Kubernetes, um, Zen project, things like that. Now, speaking of Zen, um, you're talking about the Zen server, the virtualization server? Yes. Yeah, when I say Zen project, I mean that Zen. XEN. I know they are... Well, the entire thing runs off of Linux, uh, and you're able to pretty much install any OS to it or virtualize any OS to it. Zen is kind of an interesting subject probably for another episode i'll touch briefly on how it works in this if you wish me to because i actually have pretty intimate knowledge of it because i run it on my own server that would be great uh we are going to on other episodes we're going to delve into specific uh distributions like We'll do an episode on Red Hat, an episode on Zen, an episode on Oracle, an episode on Ubuntu, on Debian, and, and go across the board. I look forward to uh, coming back for those. Touching on Zen just briefly here, Zen is kind of an oddball in the virtualization space because of the way the hypervisor works. And for those quick and dirty explanation a hypervisor is just the command and control center for multiple vms running on a piece of hardware but zen well it runs linux it is itself not really linux it runs underneath linux in fact even once you have it in once you're installing it you're actually replacing the core um kernel layer with zen and then layering the operating system that you installed zen on on top of zen so it's 
literally subverting the operating system to take over uh, translation layer between kernel and BIOS. Interesting. That's one thing I did not realize. I know I used Zen uh, probably 10 years ago on one of the early iteration of a machine that actually had the virtualization in the BIOS. Yeah, it's it's an interesting take on virtualization and making um, making sure multiple operating systems can coexist on the same machine. And again, uh, I'm just touching very briefly on the subject, but there's two different types of hypervisors. There's class one hypervisors and class two hypervisors. I believe if I'm not if I'm not totally mistaken, Zen is a class or type one hypervisor, which means it runs on the bare metal and handles everything it's in its own way. The type two is a hosted hypervisor, which this is more akin to what VirtualBox does. Okay, where it provides a translation layer between the uh, base OS that's installed on the machine and what you put into the virtual machine. Yeah, yeah, it's acting as a not even really a translation layer, but an emulation layer of BIOS on top of the OS that's running so that the guest OS just sees a single machine. Whereas a Type 1 hypervisor like Zen, all of the OSs see the hypervisor and can actually see that there are other OSs running on the machine. If you configure it that way, you can also lock them down. Interesting. That would make it really easy um, for, like, a, a company uh, to be able to create that internal network without even really having to have any of the switches or the wiring or cabling or anything like that. This is exactly how places like Microsoft, Google, Linode, um, DigitalOcean, this is exactly how they all handle their own internal networking. They're all using Type 1 hypervisors. Not necessarily Zen, but, you know, similar. Something similar to, yeah. I, I, I get that. <laughs> Definitely, why have that much overhead when you can virtualize and uh, kind of isolate everything that you need to be able to isolate out? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, that was a, a good little lesson in Zen. We'll go more into that in a later episode because there's a lot of interesting aspects uh, in that, uh, uh, you know, dealing with like the containerization and things like that of the different uh, installations. Yeah, um, touching on that subject just very briefly. Containerization is not virtualization. They are inherently different. They have the same end goal, but containers are generally greater weight than VMs. Okay, that's something I did not realize. Yeah, we'll touch on that in another episode, I think. Um, but the takeaway for the overview is that there are things that you wouldn't exactly want to run a full dedicated VM for, like, say, a media server. Media servers are best suited to a container. I know I'm going to get an education through this series. Um, 
But back to the history of things, uh, we were talking about the Linux Foundation. Yeah, uh, we got off on a tangent there, but the Linux Foundation, again, they act as a guiding body and make sure that, you know, things are proceeding apace as far as the industry is concerned for where major players want Linux to go. They do not dictate how Linux is developed, but they offer guidance and their own resources to incentivize developers to take things in the directions that they'd prefer them to go. They're also the primary certification uh, certification body for things like Linux training for, you know, company systems administrators. Okay. They also run things like their own patent house, which handles all of the legalese behind making sure patents are applied for, get approved, and are properly respected. At least when it comes to, you know, Linux and other open source things. Because, yes, you can patent things and keep them open source. You just have to uh, give credit where credit is due. Well, there's that for one, and for another, if somebody comes along and tries to commercialize on your patents and trademarks, <clears throat> um, yeah, it's basically you're going to be dealing with the Linux Foundation's lawyers on, hey, buddy, you need to pay up. Also, stop doing this. Well, it's good to know that you know, the, there is somebody there for the GNU licensing to make sure that the, the creators, the owners of this intellectual property are not getting pushed to the side. Right. Um, although I will say that as far as GNU specifically is considered, Linux Foundation doesn't really handle much of that. That's more the Electronic Frontier Foundation's purview. But yes, there is still someone there who you can turn to and go, hey, I developed this and Netgear got in huge trouble for this a number of years ago for distributing GNU licensed software without even so much as a notice of their products containing it, which is a big, huge, massive no-no. Interesting. That is definitely interesting. Yeah, um, this is... <laughs> that lawsuit was the core reason why now when you buy most routers, it comes with a little tiny paper card that says, this contains GNU software. You can find the source code at blah, blah, blah URL. <laughs> Well, they got to do something to make sure they don't get into the legal muck again. Uh, a lot of them are still in the legal muck because even though they distribute that card half the time, the link doesn't work. Which is, again, a big no-no. You're supposed to maintain this the source code server, damn it. And this is actually causing a lot of friction with companies and the GNU license specifically. This is why we have things like the Apache license or the MIT license. Or insert alternate open source license here. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've seen many, many different licenses. And the vast majority of them are not compatible with the GNU license. Uh, there's something I found out recently. Maybe you can shed some light on it. 
there was it was out of Berkeley, uh, SETI at home where they were basically networking home computers into a supercomputer to find um, extraterrestrial extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, intelligence in all the space noise. Yep. Um, now they have shut down the SETI at home project. Have you heard anything about that? I have. Yeah, I did hear about the hiatus of the team and what's going to happen is basically that particular avenue of their research has come to a uh, logical close. The, the search, it, we're really not sure if it's born fruit yet or not. Well, they've got kiloquads of data coming in every day. That's what shocked me that they were shutting the project down. Uh, it also shocked me that they did not have a variant of SETI at home for Linux users. Um, that's actually entirely untrue. There is definitely a client for it, and it's called Boink. I had never found it. I actually did a three-day search trying to find the Linux version of it. Um, you should have just asked me. At the time, I didn't think about it. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, keep in mind that there's other open network computer infrastructure projects. There's a couple hundred of them, I think. But um, Boeing, or the Berkeley Open Infrastructure for Network Computing, as its full name is supposed to be said, is the centralized kind of manager for all of them on Linux. SETI at Home is one of the more well-known ones. Another one is Folding at Home, which is still going. What is that? Uh, Folding at Home is another network computing crowdsourced supercomputer type thing that is searching for ways of folding proteins for um, medicine for things like curing cancer. I think more recently they were playing with ways of neutralizing the current pandemic virus with uh, a folded protein strain, but I don't think that bore any fruit. I, I honestly don't know my own opinions about the current uh, vaccination, but that's for another show. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, going back to, you know, the at-home style thing, there's, in the gaming community, a rather large breakthrough a couple months ago. You play Minecraft. I play Minecraft. Hell, I think most people at least are familiar with Minecraft. In some way or another, I mean, their kids probably play it if they don't themselves. Right. Well, subtangent here. You know the, um, the image of the world in the background when you yeah. first start the game? Yes. Did you know that that's actually rendered in real time and for the longest time nobody knew the seed for that world? Really? Yes. A project called Minecraft at Home started with the express purpose 
of iterating through every conceivable seed until they found a mathematical match. It took four months. They did it. Interesting. <laughs> so yeah, uh, just side tangent there because shared interests. Well, that's one of the great things about a, a podcast is we can go off on these side tangents and it doesn't hurt. Um, but anyway. Anyway. Um, although that does lead us very, very, very conveniently into one of my prepared talking points, which is gaming on Linux. Yes, that is something that has been a sticking point with a lot of people that want to switch over, uh, especially with some of the newer games like Assassin's Creed Valhalla or some of the new iterations of like World of Warcraft or something like that. Um, I know World of Warcraft plays very nicely uh, on crossover. Um, crossover Proton. Baseline still struggles a little bit. Right, but like I, I know for certain crossover, I recently used it uh, to play the actual new expansion of World of Warcraft, and it played flawlessly. I think it's oh, because Crossover actually goes through and installs all the .NET libraries and everything that World of Warcraft needs, whereas just Base Wine doesn't. Well, first off, you have a perpetual license to Crossover, like a grandfather license, don't you? No. No? Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought you did, but... Anyway, um, so one of the interesting things about crossover specifically is because they're a commercial um, derivative, not derivative, a commercial offshoot of the wine project, they actually have the clout to be able to go to companies like Blizzard and say, hey, we want you to verify your client, or we want to verify your client on Crossover. Would you please whitelist us for your anti-cheat? And a good portion of that, um, that work goes upstream back to the Wine Project, but some of it stays internal. I know, um, oh, what game is it recently? I don't remember the name of the game, but there was a game recently that uh, got verification for crossover, and the crossover uh, or, uh, enumeration layer got verified for one of the anti-cheats, but base wine was blocked. And it's kind of causing friction with the wine developers and the company involved. And I wish I could remember what company it was at the moment. Quite possibly Ubisoft. Uh, no. No? No. Ubisoft's uh, DRM actually, for the most part, isn't as egregious as some would lead you to believe. I have found it difficult, even under Proton, to be able to run a lot of the Ubisoft games. Unless it's like uh, ANNO you know, the, the more simplified games, but like Assassin's, uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, their newest release, 
it is not running under anything on Linux right now. Um, yeah, and I don't believe that's because of DRM. And keep in mind that Ubisoft Client just sucks. Like, it's optimized like a dog turd. So, yeah, it doesn't work well on Line at all anyway. Oh, the Client I was had... I had no problem installing, running, doing anything on. The game itself, when I downloaded yeah. it, it just did not... I, I don't know if it was the handoff between the client and the game, or if it was just the game. Um, it's, it's actually not even really the game's fault. It's technically Wine's fault, because Wine implemented some of the DirectX calls a little weirdly and Valhalla is expecting them to work one way and they don't this is being fixed pretty much as we speak like the wine developers are on top of this one but interestingly did you know that there is actually a Linux version of Valhalla no <laughs> give me two seconds here okay I'm back sorry um so, there is actually a Linux version of most of the recent Assassin's Creed games. There is a Linux version of Phoenix Immortal, or Immortals Phoenix Rising. Um, there is a Linux version of all of the Watch Dogs games. We, as general purpose consumers, will never see those binaries on our own local machines. That's interesting, uh... Because honestly, Assassin's Creed is the only reason uh, I'm still running under a Windows desktop on my on my main machine. <laughs> Would you like to take a random stab as to where I'm going with this little rant? No. <laughs> no. 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 I'm not even. I've learned over the couple of decades I've known you that the random stabs usually miss. Well, let's just say that I have given you pretty much the answer to the question a couple of weeks ago. So much has happened in the last couple of weeks. Refresh my memory. Okay. I'll stop, I'll stop beating around the bush. The Linux binaries for all these games I mentioned do exist, and they are in the wild. They're just not on people's private computers. They are in things like Amazon's Luna and Google's Stadia servers. Okay. So both of these... The, the problem that a lot of people will run into there is... If they actually got the game uh, either through the AMD Ryzen giveaway or if they bought the game when it was released, they'd have to buy the game again on these other platforms. Yes. Um, Ubisoft... I, uh, yes, Ubisoft Ubis has a account linking between you know, the Ubisoft Play and Stadia if you want to pay $15 a month to Ubisoft and then for the Ubisoft extra, Plus right and then $10 um, for Stadia Pro no you don't need the pro account you can 
you can use Stadia free tier and just pay Ubisoft and have access to those games. You do not need Pro. Well, Pro is nice. But... Pro is nice, but it's not required. <laughs> But we're getting off onto a tangent. This is for a different series. We will be doing a gaming series, folks. Uh, well, where Jartrell will be uh, co-hosting again, and we're going to go into a, a lot of little-known facts about Stadia, uh, Valve Steam. Uh, I'm going to dig up some facts on the new Xbox X series, as well as where a lot of platforms like PlayStation and Nintendo have shot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I think you're aiming a little low there. I think they shot themselves <laughs> a bit higher on the anatomy. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> Fair enough. But no, seriously, gaming on Linux is... It has its own history, and it will be something for a full episode. But suffice it to say, in very recent history... Um, gaming on Linux won a very massive, massive battle. Do you tell? And that battle is cloud gaming. It's Stadia, it's Luna, because these work natively in Linux through browser and give, as far as I can tell, at very least console quality gaming experiences. I played through the entirety of Cyberpunk 2077 on Stadia and enjoyed, even with the bugs, enjoyed every minute of it because, well, I understand that the bugs are going to be there. The game was fully playable and without any technical hiccups from being on Linux. Well, those bugs are present in both the the uh, PC platform as well as the PS5 platform. Yeah, and that says nothing about the current-gen consoles like PS4 and Xbox One, which have their own massive issues with the game. <laughs> but other games I've been playing through the platform, um, I've been enjoying the hell out of Grid. I've been playing... Um, the Division 2, like, almost daily. And keyboard and mouse works perfectly fine, and it's a rather action-packed shooter-type game that the only time I've died in the game was because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> we all there's have no... those moments. <laughs> right, but what I'm saying is there's no lag, there's no screw-ups because my computer got some anti-cheat BS error code. There's nothing like that. Okay, well, um, we are running long here, even after post, I think it'll be a little bit long. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and bring the history uh, of Linux to a close on this episode. Uh, the next episode, I'll put what it's going to be up on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vocally versatile. Uh, the information from the break is already there. Uh, you can go ahead and give us a call at any time. If you hit uh, zero or punch in extension 1000, you will be able to leave us a voicemail. 
And if you would like to be able to talk to Jartrell or myself directly, please, by all means, let us know by either putting it into the comments on the podcast, or you can go to Facebook and put it in the comments there on the page. I want to thank Jartrell for being with us tonight, and you've been listening to Vocally Versatile. Everyone have a great night, day, afternoon, whatever the case may be.